Well, a very good afternoon to you all. Thank you very much once again for logging in to Live Better Virtual. Um, we started this conversation about how businesses can help their staff and help their leaders to live a more holistic and better way of, uh, of working. Um, so my name is Michael Taylor and I'm joined today by a colleague from mine from, from Manchester Metropolitan University, Professor Mark Jones. Mark, welcome. Thank you. Straight from the studio of LBC where you featured this morning talking about um, the effects of um, playing in front of empty stadiums for, uh, for sports people. We'll talk about that in a minute, I think it's quite interesting. But um, the purpose of today's chat is around all sorts of different issues to do with um, managing people's mental health, in particular, managing stress, which is something uh, Mark's written quite extensively about, works with lots of different um, partners, both in business, the military, the public sector. And I think there's a recognition that there's, um, everyone, everyone's got an individual story and an individual background that impacts on their ability to work. But Mark, just in a nutshell, tell me a little bit about yourself and how you've been working during lockdown from your from your home wherever yes, you are you. my uh, uh garishly wallpapered uh, home you know thanks uh, michael my background really um is in lots of different sectors but i've done quite a lot of work in sport and uh, particularly around managing emotions dealing with pressure but certainly over the last 10 15 years um, with my colleagues who've expanded away from sport or in addition to sport not away from and looked in lots of um, other sectors where stress managing our emotions is important you mentioned uh, uh, some work with military we've done some work uh, we have some upcoming work with the european space agency looking at how people manage in isolation and confinement studies so this is where they go away for nine months for 12 months in a group of six and we look at how uh, they manage over over that time period done some work with businesses done some work um, in emergency medicine settings, looking at simulation competitions, trying to understand how people respond and how that impacts not only their well-being but also their performance. And that's one of the things that we're interested in as well. It's, it's about stress, health and performance. So like many people, I've been working um, at home since around mid-March um, and the lockdown was on the 23rd of March. Um, you know, very grateful to still have a job. I know lots of people are going through difficult yeah. times in terms of their uh, in terms of their work, but there there are certainly challenges. We have two. My wife and I work two children, ten and seven. The homeschooling has veered between functional to shambolic on occasions to to non-existent on others, and so okay. tackling all of those plus the job is a bit of a bit of a challenge. And what do you think Ofsted would give you for your homeschooling, Mark? I, well, you know, I, I, I know there's three categories, isn't there? But, you know, I'd be delighted with the needs improvement. I mean, okay. I, I'm probably failing, probably failing, if I'm brutally honest with you. So. Okay, well, I, hopefully you won't be put into special measures just yet. But um, there you go. Um, Mark, I, I, obviously, I've done a, a bit of, um, I've worked with you before. I'm familiar with your work. You're a great asset to the university that by day that I, I work at as well. And um, so tell us, first of all, um, about the work that you've recently been doing on the subject that you just referred to, high performance. And um, I think a lot of people are quite excited that, you know, um, professional sports returning this weekend, that uh, the football season's back on, even for us mid-table sufferers of clubs like Blackburn Rovers. Um, but what's it going to be like for footballers playing in front of empty stadiums? Because that's what you were talking to LBC and you've got a piece in the Times today about as well. 
Yeah, so what we're most interested in, I think, with the, with the return of football to an empty stadia is that it gives us a really nice natural experiment about how people, and I include the officials, the referees, as well as the players in that, manage in front of what would be empty stadiums. And so what we're particularly interested in is that in sports settings, you will tend to see what they call a home advantage. The home teams will typically win, and in football, it varies, but around you know, 57, 58% of games will go to, um, um, wins will go to the, to the home team. What we've seen in the Bundesliga, uh, the German football league is that um, since the return, actually that's reversed. Away teams tend to be winning more often than home teams. The home advantage has disappeared. Now, not everyone likes football, but what football is, is a great natural experiment. It gives us an insight into decision-making and emotions and performance. So with referees, we have in generally, and I, you know, um, I'm not blaming referees because they're people like us and we would do the same, referees will tend to favour the home team and tend to award more decisions for the home team against the away team. And that seems to be a large part of the home advantage. When you remove that crowd, when you get rid of 60, 50,000 uh, screaming people, that incentive to appease a crowd or where the crowd noise is acting as a decision-making heuristic, as a guide to indicate that was a really bad challenge, send that away player off. Uh, when that disappears, you get more balanced decision-making. So we see the officials being less favourable, or that's hypothesis, towards the home team. But also, of course, the players have a challenge as well. They're used to playing their entire career uh, in front of crowds, getting energy from the crowds, you know, performing for the crowds, to the crowds. And how they manage that when they step back into the arena is going to be interesting. I think for away players, going to hostile environments is much less intimidating than it was previously. And yeah. I, I think you're going to see lots of differences in performance levels there. Yeah. Now, for a lot of us um, in, sort of, I guess you called it white collar jobs, um, we've been conducting a lot of our meetings on, um, on like this on Zoom. And I'm, you know, I'm quite used to it. I do lots of seminars and events and that sort of thing. It doesn't really bother me. But I do, I do feel that there's a certain amount of performance involved in the way that you contribute to a meeting, even if it's just a handful of people, some of whom, you know, the majority of whom you might already know and work with. Mm -hmm. But I've noticed that a lot of young, younger people in particular don't pipe up like they do in team meetings at work to the same extent that they do on it seems to favour a certain type of personality because we've created a performative culture where people are expected to um, present, even if you're just making a comment. I think that's um, really interesting. And in terms of, I mean, it's spot on to say that, you know, it's the new way of working now. I mean, yeah. a couple of things will come, come on to, I, I guess, but having invested so much time in learning, adapting to this way of working, uh, where the companies will seek to go back to the old, old way of working would be would be really interesting. I don't. I think it's an area ripe for research. You know, I think what's really interesting about Zoom meetings is I'm talking to you now and I can see myself on the screen. Yes. And and so I'm visually there, and I realise my hands now. I don't know why I'm doing that with my hands. Whereas in a normal meeting, I don't have any of that external visual cues of myself, yeah. if, if you like. So I think you're right that there's a performance element there that is reinforced by the fact I can see what I'm saying, I can see what I'm doing as I'm talking to you. And so 
I think that that's an interesting element for for research because I think you know we'd like to know a bit more about that and how different personality types adapt to um, these types of meetings. The other thing, of course, is that if I speak in in a meeting, I often talk to one person. I might direct my comment at someone, but here I can see everyone I'm speaking to. Sometimes you might be able to see all, all of those individuals on uh, on Zoom. I think there are strategies that people um, can use, and I know you know lots of companies have used strategies like leader speaks last. So I think it's easy in a um, online meeting to to everybody jump in, fight, fire in. It will always be the case that those people who are more confident will throw their hat into the ring first. And I think maybe as leaders, as managers, we can structure that in a way that ensures that everybody has their say. But you do it in a way that is in order of seniority. So. You know, you ask people who are newest what they think about something and the next person and so on. So that sort of leader speaks last uh, way of conducting a meeting might be helpful to ensure that you get um, a full range of views. Good. I like, I like the way that you frame it, that it's, it's an area for research rather than jump into a hot take. Because I think we are living in an environment at the moment where everyone's got a hot take on everything all the time as well. And I think... Um, I, I think we've got to try and comprehend, understand and compute what's going on rather than always just leap, leap, leap into a conclusion. I, obviously, I wouldn't expect anything less of an academic of, of stature like you. But if I could just return to some of your other areas of research, which I've, um, I've been fascinated by previously in the chats that we've had previously as well. Um, and it's slightly unrelated to this sort of COVID environment. Uh, but it is very, very relevant to how we live and how we work. And I guess it's the impact of technology and the expectation that we are always on, that we've got laptops, we work from home, we've got phones that, the, that our businesses provide to us, that we're expected to be able to answer them at all hours of the day. And it's sort of created a, a, a trickle, a drift into every area of life. And that's, you know, that can have negative connotations as well as feeling in control and can't it? But it can have negative and positive connotations. Yeah, I think, and I think that's, that is absolutely spot on. So I think that is the real challenge that we're faced with. So if you think about agile working, the ability to work in a flexible manner is really something that is um, uh, useful for many people, and particularly those individuals who might have caring responsibilities, and that might disproportionately affect some sectors of society more than others. But you're also right to say that, you know, in particular with the way that we work, with our ability to access our work on our phone, on our tablet, um, we have what the French politician famously called an electronic leash. That is, we can't disconnect. And we do know from research that actually the ability to rest and to recover and to recuperate gives us much better uh, opportunity to maintain our resilience, our mental health and our well-being. And you can see lots of people who tend to save up for their annual leave. So they will work very, very hard. They'll have um, their two weeks away or their one week away in Spain. They'll come back. But anybody who's come back from leave will know the feeling. By the lunchtime after coming back from leave, you're, you're fully back in the swing of things and you're exhausted by the amount of work uh, that you had to pick up. And so the benefits, which are there from taking annual leave, you know, um, don't get me wrong, will tend to dissipate still relatively quickly. And what we need to do is to build in regular opportunities to rest and to recover and I think what's really interesting around particularly email and we've done some 
uh, some research um, around email looking at the link to psychological health and uh, well-being is that where we see people with email overload where we see people who access email out of work hours much greater than those who, who don't we see negative relationships with um, uh, psychological health and you know self-reported physical health symptoms as well now I think there's, there's just so many nuances with this that's why I think it's important to discuss it of course there are days maybe even a week where we have to work very hard to get a project in and we might work quite hard and quite long days there to get something done but i think we cannot sustain that level of working continuously week after week after week and i think you know it's linked to technology but linked more broadly to this idea of constantly working i think there's a great article um, in the harvard business review about the dangers and lower of the 70 hour working week which is that, of course, people have jobs, they love their jobs, they work hard, they enjoy it, they get reinforcement for that. Brilliant, Michael, you're working really hard, let me give you a bit more money, let me give you praise. And that's great, so you're getting that reinforcement, plus you enjoy your job. But then also what we see is that that tends to then cause a disconnect with some of our social connections, our family life, our, our friends. And we tend, to, um, we tend to lose touch with those. We lose that sort of social connections that we need to maintain our health and well-being. So I think there's, there is um, a lot of work, particularly around email, you know, and we were interested in the idea there's nothing wrong with working, nothing wrong with working hard, but building in those opportunities to disconnect and ensure that you do something else to rest and recover, I think, is, is crucial. I can remember working. Uh, in the Welsh office in Cardiff, so the forerunner of the Welsh Assembly, first job after leaving um, university, you would only get contacted twice a day when the internal post, when the post would come around, and that would be internal memos or external post. So you would do your work, but you only ever got contacted twice a day. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting. And some of the most um, efficient ways of managing our email is to treat um, email much like mail and that we access it at set points during the day so we treat something that is uh, asynchronous really a email i send you something i shouldn't expect something back for a week or two but we treat it as sort of a synchronous conversation i've sent michael an email why isn't he replied back i know he's yeah. in his office over there and i think we need to treat it much more uh, much more like normal mail and there's been some really nice research showing that once we chunk our access to our email and treat it like that then we get sort of increases in productivity and psychological well-being because we're not getting that destruction. Well I guess the challenge now with technology Mark isn't just email but you think about the number of channels that people can contact you on. I think about the people I work the most, uh, work closest with um, we're in contact on direct messages on Twitter when we send each of the things that we've seen that we think they'll be interested in. That then sparks a conversation. Uh, WhatsApp. We, we have our own text group as well, yeah. which often runs a, uh, a running commentary alongside meetings. Um, to so what he said there is quite interesting, relevant to you. What do you think of that? Um, or we make sure so-and-so picks up on that. So suddenly you've got all these devices and all these different channels to communicate with. And it's very hard to know which ones to switch off, which ones are demands for your attention, which ones are requests. Yeah. Where, where does the research tell you what sort of effect it does that have on people's well-being and their stress levels? Well, I think it's a, you know, it's, 
it's a really um, good point. And I'm not aware, actually, of, of the research that's looked at different channels. I can tell you some anecdotal stories of, of, of people that, uh, who share the stories of being at home, uh, being added um, to a WhatsApp group at work when uh, he was at home on a Sunday. And that's one of the interesting things is those, you don't have control over those, so they intrude into your, someone decides they want to add you to a WhatsApp work-related group on a Sunday, they will do that. And I remember he got so frustrated, he picked his phone up and threw it against the wall. And he said, that probably wasn't the best way of dealing with it, but it was that level of frustration of, of being in, in demand and on a Sunday getting added to another channel that they could get contacted with. Yeah. And I think what you've spoken about there ties into this whole idea of um, you know, electronic communication being quite intrusive and impacting on our ability to switch off. And it, the multiple channels just adds layers to yeah. uh, layers of complexity to what we spoke about earlier on with email, which is a traditional work communication. But of course, that's been superseded by many other channels in, in yeah. recent years. So Mark, let me turn to some work that you've done with Nuffield, which is really interesting. Uh, that's arisen out of your, your, your research group at the university around stress. And um, particularly, just before we, before we move on to some of the recommendations for employers that that report threw up, which I thought in and of themselves, they're, they're fascinating. And I'm sure people listening to this will be able to relate to them. But just give me a definition from a, from a psychologist's point of view of what stress is and pressure. Now, I know what pressure is, and you referred yourself to working to a deadline, having a report to get out. You know, and I, I had a dissertation to submit by May, May the 8th. I submitted it on May the 7th. I could have submitted it on March the 8th, but... Um, but we don't do it. You know, we, we like a deadline. It motivates us. We have the adrenaline rush. I didn't sleep as many hours as I did. Um, that's great. I've been a journalist most of my life. I know the importance of, of deadlines for production cycles. Um, but not stress. Stress is when you can't function, isn't it? it just give, give me the definitions rather than my own, my own pop yeah. definitions. No, I think well, you touched on some really good points. So I think, you know, Stress and the anxiety, the worry, the concern that comes from that can be a powerful motivator. And you've talked about that. The idea that we're concerned about something, that it matters to us, that we do well at this, that we want to achieve in this is a powerful motivator. Stress in its broadest sense is really around our balance of demands and our resources. So what are the uh, psychological demands? What are the physical demands that we're faced with? It might be effort, having to work really hard. It might be uncertainty. You know, I, I don't know how this is going to go. I'm a bit worried um, about this. And it's also, you know, about the potential for harm in, in, terms of, in terms of stress. Now, that could be physical harm or psychological harm. So, you know, there are lots of particular demands that might um, arise. And then we think about our resources that we might be able to use to manage some of those demands. And I think when we talk about stress, our ability to manage and deal with stress, then we can bring quite a few resources to the, um, to the table here. Lots of things can help us. Good social networks, uh, people that we can disconnect with, yeah. hobbies, um, our ability to transition out of work when we um, come back home, our psychological strategies, how we see the world. So, you know, do we, um, uh, you know, when we are faced with a demand, uh, a tricky thing to do, do we think, well, okay, this is going to be hard, but I tell you what I can do. I can do this, I can do that. I'll draw on them for support. You know, I've done things like this before. So you get a different perspective rather than going, no way I can uh, cope with this. 
the way we sleep is a, is a resource that impacts on our ability to manage our demands and our stress. All that's fine. And we get a perfectly normal stress response through the increase in cortisol, you mentioned adrenaline. It's there to provide us with energy to deal with what we, um, what we have to face with, what we have to deal with rather. Of course, when this happens over time consistently, and you're getting emailed every 15 minutes with people demanding things left, right and centre. I'm phoning you up wanting to know where that report was or whatever it might be. You know, you're getting these constant sources of stress. Then we're getting these constant spikes. Where this happens over a long period of time, we can get into chronic stress. That is where you know, we talk rather than the acute stress responses, it's chronic stress response. Right. And then we can lead into other conditions, you know, like depression, um, you know, like anxiety, uh, stress, anxiety, and depression in a more chronic sense. And that's where you get into the, the idea that people find it sometimes quite difficult to function. It can affect our uh, motivation. It can affect our ability to interact with others and has a, a negative effect on our psychological yeah. and our physical health. Very good. Very good. So talk to us about the recommendations that arose out of the Nuffield work that you did. In fact, give us a Give us an intro into what that project was and uh, how it came about and, and, and ultimately what you found. Yeah, so um, this was last year and uh, we got in touch with Nuffield Health, very good partners of uh, Manchester Metropolitan. And we, um, they asked us to do some work for them around what their companies um, wanted. Nuffield Health partner with um, 60% of the FTSEs, um, uh, 250. So they have some very good corporate partners. And one of the areas they were particularly interested in was, was on remote working. And there has been a general trend, an increase in remote working. So if we oh. look at the ONS survey data, there's been a 78% increase in people working at least partly from home or home as a base for their agile working uh, from 2008 to 2018. So we've seen that general trend in that direction. Okay, so those general trends become a bit of a tsunami, as we saw in... Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Did you know something we didn't? <laughs> well, do you know, I wish, uh, I, I wish there'd been that sudden, that sudden change to... Um, uh, to lockdown and, and home working with no uh, flexibility was uh, was interesting. They were interested in whether remote working, and that was at least being at home one day a week, was linked to better well-being, uh, stress, uh, health, and productivity. So, looking at those four factors. There. Yeah. And um, so, what did you find, and what um, what what did you uh, end up recommending to Nuffield's clients? That um, is a, is a is implementing home working strategies in a, in a positive way and, and where were they getting it wrong? Yeah, no, so I think what we did was a, was a liter literature review, a systematic literature review, take into account what was out there. We presented this back at some two corporate days and got good feedback from the uh, uh, companies. Broadly, and I hate to be a bit of a psychologist here because there's always caveats, but broadly, the literature will tell us that working at home is associated with well-being okay and so generally people who have that ability to work at home is associated with greater levels of well-being and actually the more you get to work at home the greater the levels of well-being um, you see wow. now there are caveats there i'll come on to that in terms of personality in terms of you know how the company links to the uh, links to the person and so on However, you know, it's not all about well-being. You can see things like professional isolation as well. And there's uh, one study um, itself, which looked at a number of studies, that said that actually, although we can see an increase in well-being with more days spent at home, what we see when it goes past around two and a half days, three days a week at home, 
is we see an increase in professional isolation. So actually I might, you know, I don't have to travel into Manchester every single day. Uh, I'm saving money on, um, um, on, on, on travel. I'm a bit more relaxed when I get home because I haven't left home when I uh, meet the kids. Uh, but actually I'm now getting increasingly disconnected in a professional sense from, from my colleagues. And you see that just, you know, disconnect happening. So there's lots of um, uh, factors at play. In terms of stress, it was a bit more mixed. And um, in general, it was, well, it was probably a bit more mixed. Some studies showed that working at home was associated with better stress levels, others uh, um, high, higher stress levels. And there's some issues there around, in particular, people being able to do their job from home, so having access to the right technology, um, as an example. There are individual differences that have an impact on our ability to, to work from home very well. We spoke earlier on about um, being able to disconnect from work. And so, you know, we have someone who might be high agreeableness, uh, that is, you know, um, want to please people, high conscientiousness, want to work hard, high neuroticism, so they worry about things. If they're left to their own devices, they might end up working all hours. So personality has an impact. Those individuals who are uh, tendency to engage in rumination, so they might worry about things, they, they tend not to respond so well to um, the opportunity um, to, work, to work at home. So there's personality um, issues. There's ensuring that we have the right equipment. There's also the way the person perceives it as well. And I think um, we have discussed this um, before, the idea that actually for some people, they saw remote working and the ability to work at home as a reward. Mm. And um, that in itself, so, so people will tend to work quite hard then because they saw it as something that was given to them as a benefit. I remember one of the heads of HR at the previous um, podcast what we did said that actually 10 years ago, people were coming to her asking about salary, what car, now they were asking about what the remote working arrangements were for the company. The flexibility mattered more than some of the material. I'm not saying they're not important, yeah. but some of the material things. And in terms of productivity, you know, the jury was out. You could only find three studies that looked at um, productivity in, re in remote working. Interestingly, we have done a very brief initial survey with uh, Nafit Health across some selected uh, corporate clients. And they've reported that during this lockdown, the vast majority of the productivity has neither changed or has stayed the same or gone up. So oh, even stayed the same or gone up, right. That's the area, okay. yeah. Only a very wow. small percentage said it's gone down. So. Yeah, I think, again, pre, we're, we're talking in a, the, the scenario of pre-lockdown when yes. people had the choice to give someone the permission in many ways to work from home. Um, I think employers would respond to that, 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 that they're trusted. And trust is a very positive um bit of positive feedback to get from an employer isn't it that presumably if they don't breach that trust you know if they're not just you know playing computer games all day then yeah. <laughs> no i think i think uh, i think it's, you're, you're spot on i think that's how many of the people would, would report it they felt a sense of pride and, and in being trusted yeah. to be able to uh, to work from home and and you know of all the problems you might have from remote working from working from home people playing computer games isn't really one of the bigger ones it's yeah. in fact the opposite one where yeah. some people said that your home then rather than becoming a, a place of restoration became a place of demand you know and and there are things that we need to think about and everybody's had to think about about how do we disconnect when the office computer is in the same room where they might be watching tv yeah. when i walk past it 
to get a coffee. I think, well, I'll just check my emails or just check my okay. phone or, or whatever. So we've all had to wrestle with those. Yeah. So. Um, right, well, I'm going to invite people who are, who've logged on for the live iteration of this uh, of this conversation to to think about any questions that you might have for Mark around psychology and management and how to work. One of the things I've always taken from your work is, um, and not just in the setting of um, what you've done with, with Nuffield on this workplace project, but it's that understanding and that empathy that everybody comes to their point in their life from a different, with a different story and the importance of understanding that story in how you relate to that person as an individual what they've gone through I guess that absolutely matters when you're working with military personnel who've been in combat and they may be suffering PTSD uh, post-traumatic stress disorder um, but equally you know you know people who've been in different workplace situations people whose home life may have been more traumatic so give us some insights onto um, management advice that you would impart to how to understand without being too intrusive because that can be quite a delicate conversation to have can't it yeah i think that's a it's a very good um, good question and i think that you know the, the the issue around stress and our ability to manage our uh, the demands that we're faced with is interesting because it changes over our lifespan and can change uh, in response to our own experience, but also things that happen to us. And I just, I'll use a relatively trite example just to, just to illustrate this. We can all think of sports people who at the age of 18 and 19 burst onto the scene and seem to be able to play without a care in the world. And yet, and yet suddenly two or three years later seem to have the weight of the world on their shoulders. And it's the same scenario, but they've struggled to deal or something has, something has changed in their, uh, in, the, in the way that they can manage those. Other people learn to cope and adapt, and you can see that changing through. You know, how we manage our working environment can change with family circumstances, caring responsibilities, both parents or children. And so all of those factors can play in. I think, you know, in terms of uh, being a leader to understand uh, understand this, it's difficult to go beyond emotional intelligence. You know, the idea that we should be able to empathize we should, um, where we can, to listen, but also to recognise, and I think this is probably crucial, that people's perspective or the way they make sense of the word, world is going to be different depending on their own experiences, not to expect them to, to have the same motivations, the same ability to manage the demands that uh, you, I, or someone else might have. Yeah, so we've had a question that's, uh, that, that's come in, and it's like, I've got a mixture of people who are going to be coming off furlough. I've had um, people who've had to be coming into the office more regularly. And they're all coming at it from a different perspective. How do I make sure that uh, everybody's treated the same? Or do I just have to recognise that they can't be? Uh, good, uh, good question. I, I'm always struck by, in terms of workplace environments, um, you know, how, how, do you, how do you manage workplace environments? I think, you know, if you, if you look at social identity models of leadership, it's the idea that uh, it's important for a leader to be able to connect with um, their workplace, that they have a shared set of values, a shared set of goals. Um, and I think although people are coming in from different perspectives, they're aiming for the same 
perspective. So the backgrounds might be different, but reinforcing, I think, you know, the aims of, of the organization, what the challenges are. I think taking the opportunity if people have had different experiences to learn from that. So, you know, what has been going on? I think the people who have been furloughed would want to know about that. Yeah. And I think it would be interesting for the people who are there to get some sense of, you know, speak to the people who are furloughed. What are the big challenges about having to come back in? So some kind of dialogue. It doesn't have to be, you know, uh, in depth in any sense, but just sharing some of that information uh, would be helpful. But I was always struck as well by um, um, some of the research that we, I think the ONS did, did, um, did as well, that showed that, you know, 37% of, of, of British workers um, uh, didn't think that their job made a meaningful contribution to the world. And yeah. I think, yeah, and I think that that was a really interesting uh, bit of data. And you, you could argue about the percentage, but the idea being that, you know, meaning, purpose, matters and as yeah. leaders we have an opportunity to reinforce that so that people um have a sense of what the meaning and the purpose of the uh, of, of the job is and it was really interesting um, um this research has showed that actually a large percentage of british workers thought their jobs made no meaningful contribution at all so we all know that we can deal with large amounts of stress large amounts of demands if we think this has meaning it matters once, it, once we think it doesn't matter, it becomes a bit different. There. Yeah, I mean, just to, to, to get philosophical rather than psychological for a moment, but we have had an opportunity during the pandemic to have a bit of a reset and a reevaluation about what is useful, purposeful. And, and I think that's almost going to come to the fore again, isn't it? I, um, I think that's, um, I think we've done that in, in some of the, um, you know, media have had to led some of the discussions on that. Um, you know about but I think you know just speaking to colleagues and friends you know if you're working um, in in an industry and then suddenly that stops and you're furloughed or you're at home it yeah. gives you a chance to reevaluate and to think about things that you would not ordinarily um, have had um, and I think you're right that I think a real ripe area for research is about understanding not only how people reevaluate their, their work um, but also then what decisions they make as a result of that what career changes yeah. are going to happen in the world of work you know how, how do they approach their work differently do they change jobs and some of course you know sadly have been forced to do that to a degree because of some of the economic situation but I think there'll be other people taking this opportunity to to really think about that because when we're on the, the treadmill you don't get the time to think so much do you yeah but what the, the social value that we attach to well, the numerical value that we attach to jobs in, say, the care sector is low. I mean, that's not me making a value judgment. That's society making a judgment that if you go and work in a care home, you get paid minimum wage. Yeah. Because that's the value society puts on it. Yeah. I guess what I'm saying is people who maybe hold their heads a little higher now, that maybe they're held in a great bit greater esteem. Um. <laughs> Ultimately, I don't know if it's going to make any difference to how people are paid, but I think it's going to be a very brave politician that thinks you can freeze the wages of people who work in the NHS. Um, I think, yeah. Coming out of this pandemic, but again, we're straying into politics yeah. and philosophy in many ways. But, but I do, I do think it has a huge psychological impact, doesn't it? Anyway, we, we've uh, we've set ourselves that we do forty minutes. We've done thirty-five, and I've now got two questions, which. 
to come back to your point about uh, that adrenaline rush and that pressure, uh, the, first, the next one is, should we be more understanding when it comes to stress? Uh, the person asking the question says, I have always been quite reluctant to say that I am stressed at work because maybe this has an unfair negative association. I mean, yeah, at the risk I'm, of repeating yourself. Yeah, no, I, I, don't, I don't think I am. I, I, you know, I think we should be um, uh, more understanding or of stress, the causes of it, the consequences of it, and the effect that it has on, on those individuals. And we can think about it, you, to go back to your phrase, philosophically about whether it's a good thing, but also let's yeah. think about it from a business perspective. You know, if you look at the health and safety executive, you know, 44% um, uh, of work-related absences were due to stress, depression, or anxiety. You know, 54% of um, days lost were due to stress, depression, uh, or anxiety. So it is a public health issue. It is a organizational economic issue, but it is also, of course, you know, you shouldn't forget that a personal yeah. issue as well. Yeah. So, so absolutely. And I think, you know, lots of, lots of companies are doing some really good work, um, you know, in this area to, to increase the conversations around that. Okay. And the final question, I haven't had to furlough staff or make that many changes, luckily. However, I am experiencing levels of anxiety about switching my working day back to the office. Has the pandemic had the effect, had an effect, even if we haven't personally been touched by it? Now, let me just put my own little take on that as well, just before we wrap, you answer that. Um, I wouldn't like to work from home that much because I think I'm missing out on stuff that's going on. I miss on and there's serendipitous moments where I might bump into someone interesting like Professor Mark Jones when I'm walking through the Burley campus mm -hmm. and, and some insight you might give me or an event that might be going on. Um, obviously, we don't have that at the moment. There isn't the fear of missing out because we're all in the same place. Um, as we're coming out of that, there is, there is a new anxiety, isn't there, about the return? Yeah, so I think we're familiar and we're coming to somewhere unfamiliar again. I think it's, uh, I mean, there's probably, it's a really interesting point. There's probably lots of layers to that. There's, there, there might be the fear and the anxiety where we've cocooned ourselves and we've protected ourselves from uh, COVID-19. We might be feel as though we're putting ourselves at risk, particularly if we've got to take public transport to, to go back to work. Yeah. I think there might be anxiety about physically going back to work that relates to some of the things I mentioned around remote working. It depends on the work. I, I, and I, I understand that the, the balance of remote working might be different depending on industries and levels and, uh, and roles and so on. But I think generally people like some flexibility around their, around their working week. And I understand and agree with you that uh, not many people want to work at home five days a week, but they, they like that. And the anxiety that they might have lost some of that flexibility to go back to a normal working week might be interesting for some of them. Yeah. Others might be saying, I'm so glad to, to be getting into the office or the, or the, or the work site for the next uh, five days. But also, I think any change is stressful. So I mentioned, you know, in terms of some of the demands that we're faced with earlier, uncertainty is stressful. Right. When we don't know what's going to happen, I think that's, um, that can be a cause of stress uh, for us. And I think for lots of people, they don't know what it's going to be like to go back to work. And they might be uncertain about how hygiene is going to be managed. And I'm not saying in this instance, yeah. but there might be lots of uncertainties around it. that Sometimes the workplace can't deal with might be on public transport. And so, on. Yeah. so I think where you have that uncertainty, where you can alleviate that by explaining 
all of the systems and protocols they got in place. And by illustrating that, so to remove some of the uncertainty, I think I think that can that can be helpful. Um, so I think it's really interesting to be you know what's happened over the last six weeks has opened up lots of debates around work and working practices and I think it's going to be really interesting to to look back in 12 months and explore how some of these things have uh, um, changed and panned out. It is I think we're, we're a, a fantastic laboratory aren't we now we're all uh, we're all potentially experiments in in, yes. uh, in, in, in both in human behavior yeah, and uh, social behavior. It's been, yeah. Mark it's been absolutely fascinating as ever talking to you Thanks so much for your insights. Um, these we're going to be ca carrying on with these. Look out for them um, with the hashtag Live Better. I'll look forward to joining you in a week or so with a with another guest as we we all come to terms with this new reality of how we're working. But uh, that's all from me for the time being. And thanks once again to Professor Mark Jones. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Thank you.